In our study through the Bible, as we're now in Matthew 17, we're a few more weeks and we'll be finished with Matthew. I don't know how far we'll get tonight. There's a lot in here, a lot crammed in here, but I'm enjoying personally this study immensely. Chapter 17 begins with what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain and being transfigured. Really, the, the chapter should have started in verse 28 of chapter 16, because Jesus, speaking to the disciples, said, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In each case... Um, when the Mount of Transfiguration occurs in the Gospels, it's always preceded by this statement. And so Jesus was saying, there are some of you standing here who before you die, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He was referring to one of two possibilities. One is that he's referring to the disciples who were standing there with him, and they would actually see Jesus in his glorified body and, in a sense, get a preview of coming attractions of the kingdom of God. Or he may be referring to the fact that Moses and Elijah, who are going to show up on the Mount of Transfiguration, were also going to be the two witnesses in the tribulation who would literally see these events unfold. So you can take your choice, whichever one you like. Um, frankly, I don't know which one it is, and, and I don't even lean one way or the other. But at any rate, it's tied in with the Transfiguration. It's not, he wasn't saying, and I'm sure people could have got the idea from this that, hey, Jesus' kingdom is just about to appear, and that's obviously not what he was referring to because it didn't happen, and the fact that it's connected every time to the Mount of Transfiguration gives us a pretty good clue. But after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Amazing event. They go up on the mountain, and all of a sudden, Jesus was transfigured or transformed. The word there, transfigured, in verse 2 is the Greek word metamorpho, which is metamorphosis is what we get. It means to undergo a transformation. It's the same word that's used to describe resurrection. So Jesus actually, we use the word now morphine, and uh, you know, where one image turns into another image, and that's kind of what happened right before their very eyes. Jesus looked like the man from Galilee, the man they had been hanging out with all the time, and he began to be transformed, and he morphed into this glorious being that was perhaps his new body. Perhaps it was a preview of, of the body that he will have as we see him for eternity. Now, there are some people who make a big point that when Jesus appeared after his resurrection, he looked like a regular person. They thought he was the gardener. They didn't know who he was, the disciples on the Emmaus Road. And there, is some interest, there are some interesting thoughts concerning that. However, I am not one who just wants to say absolutely that Jesus is going to look like a regular man throughout eternity, or that we will, for that matter, as well. It's possible that he looked that way, and yet when he ascended into heaven, there was a transformation, a metamorphosis that happened even as it did on the Mount of Transfiguration. The reason why I don't buy 
just this idea that he's going to look like the gardener for the rest of his life is because in Revelation chapter 1, when it describes Jesus, and that's the last photograph really we have of him, he's described in this way. He, after he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and so on, it says, then Revelation 1.12, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like I was dead. I have a, I have a feeling that when we get to heaven, that's more what he's going to look like than like somebody that you would confuse for a gardener. And it may be that we end up looking like that as well. But the disciples got this little preview at any rate. And, and as they saw him transfigured, amazingly, Moses and Elijah standing there talking to him. I'd love to have heard that conversation and see what were they talking about. Imagine Moses who never actually got to go into the promised land because of him breaking the type, striking the rock twice, being angry with the people, and he missed going into the promised land after working toward that goal for 120 years. Now he shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and looking around goes, so this is what it looked like. This is it. And Jesus may be going, well, you made it, Moses. You got here. Elijah, after going through all of the frustration that he went through at times, though he did great miracles, yet he had those doubts. He wondered, you know, over in 1 Kings 17, 18, he, he was wanting to die because he felt like he was the only one left. Looking forward, prophesying such glorious things concerning uh, sorry, that was Elijah, not Isaiah. Uh, prophesying great things of Jesus. He, he was going and saying, I'm sorry, I'm, I don't know, I can't be jet lagged. It was only an hour's time difference. But, but you know, I don't want to get Elijah and, and Isaiah mixed up. But Elijah, certainly having those great prophecies that he had and going through what he went through, and doubting and wondering, and then God calling Elisha, comforting him, speaking to him in a still, small voice. I wonder if when he heard that still, small voice, now he stood there with Jesus and recognized the voice again. Is, is that Jesus? Is he, you know, wow, this is it. You're the guy that was whispering to me. You're the one who was so bright, I couldn't see you, and now I do. What an, what an experience that must have been. And here the two of them, knowing that again, they get to probably come back one more time and testify during the tribulation. Moses and Elijah standing there. Now, how did the disciples know they were Moses and Elijah? Did Jesus introduce them? Say, hey, this is Moses, this is Elijah. Did Jesus... You know, did they have name tags? Hello, my name is Moses. I suspect that they being in their future bodies as well, where it says that we will know even as we are known, how it might be that when you see Moses, you'll know he's Moses. It won't be because he looks like Charlton Heston. It's, I believe that when we get to heaven, we will know everyone will look around and everyone will know you. Not only will it be amazing that you'll go, Elijah, wow, I can't believe it's you. 
You know, tell me, what was that like, slaughtering the prophets of Baal? And, and then him going, and it's you. And he calls you by name. And he says, man, that time when, boy, when you got saved, I, I thought there was no hope for you. And then God did that work in your life. And remember when you shared your faith with that one guy and he came, look, there he is right now. He's in heaven because of you. And, and they will know about you even as you know about them, at least that's what I'm supposing. If we know, even as we are known, that wouldn't surprise me. They seem to know what's going on. And, and the disciples somehow just recognize them. And so I like that. But Peter always pipes up. And he answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. No kidding. If you wish, if this sounds like a good idea to you, Jesus, I'm thinking, I have an idea. He goes, how about, let's make three tabernacles, three little souvenir stands, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What Peter was saying was a nice thing to say, really. He's going, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. He's saying, the two of them together, Jesus, you're in good company. Jesus, you're like Moses and Elijah. In fact, it's kind of like Moses was first, Elijah was second, and now here's you. And how about all three of you? Let's, you know, it, it's almost like, oh, can we get our pictures taken with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? And like tourists at Disneyland. And before he could even, before Jesus could even answer him, something radical happens. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. See, God will not allow the spotlight to be shared with Jesus and anyone. No one has a right to have their little monument next to Jesus. And when we get to heaven, it's not going to be, oh, you know, Jesus is here. And, you know, James and John find out later they couldn't be on either side. It's not going to be, look at this, Jesus and Paul and Moses and Elijah and Billy Graham and Chuck Smith. And, no. And in fact, God will speak up right away when people begin to glorify men. And he will, he may even take away the people that are being worshipped, that are being commemorated, so that we will see Jesus only. And as he speaks from heaven, with this bright light in response to Peter's suggestion, the father said, this is my beloved son. Hear him, not anyone else. It's about him, it's all about Jesus. And so here on the Mount of Transfiguration, a lesson that we better learn, or we will have to learn it over and over again, that if we place people on pedestals, if we begin to depend on people, if we start to glorify people, or if in ministry we begin to take glory to ourselves, we begin to relish in that experience of being well-respected and well-thought-of, and oh, we begin to elevate ourselves. God will shine a light on that. And the upshot of it will be, you're blinded, you're scared, and as he comforts you, you'll look around, and you don't have anyone but Jesus. I've had this happen many times, where there were people I was depending on, people that I looked up to, that I respected, that I almost worshipped. 
And God sometimes had to work in my life so that that was taken away. So that in some way that glory that I would heap on a person would be shattered, would be destroyed, would be leveled. And I'd go, oh no, now what do I have? Only Jesus. And the Father will do that because he's faithful. Don't feel destroyed when some of your earthly gods turn out to have feet of clay. When some of the people that you respect greatly end up messing up or letting you down or disappointing you, that's okay. Because if you look around and see Jesus only, that's a good place to be. By the way, the the Jesus only group, which is, uh, I consider them to be a cult, takes their takes their title, Jesus only, from this passage. These are people who don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in the Father and the Spirit. They only believe in Jesus. In a way, they're, they're, it's kind of a modal, modalism is another word to describe, but there was an ancient heresy called Sabellianism that's the same basic thing. Rather than believing in the Trinity, you believe in one God, and sometimes he shows up as Jesus. Sometimes he may show up as the Father, he may show up as the Holy Spirit, but basically it's just Jesus, he's God, and there is no relationship, there is no Trinity. And, and that's heretical, and you can see it from this passage even, if they would look. Why would Jesus be there and the Father would be speaking about him from heaven? Jesus would have to be some kind of a ventriloquist. Earlier at his, at his baptism... You have Jesus being baptized. You have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. You have the voice of the Father coming from heaven. So the idea of us seeing Jesus only is really because he's the one we will see. He's the member of the Godhead that we can see. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not being that he is the Father. There's still a distinctness in the Trinity. And yet, Jesus is the one who came here to earth, became a man so that we could understand and relate to him personally. And, and so, don't make that statement more than it is, but we'd all be better off if we could see Jesus instead of a lot of the other things that we see. He goes on and tells them, don't tell anybody about this until after I've risen from the dead. They just kind of missed that. His disciples asked, saying, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they were going, now, you know, there are scribes who are saying that Elijah is going to come before the Messiah comes. Here, you're already here. Elijah shows up and he's gone. And Jesus answered and said to them, and by the way, the book of Malachi says clearly that Elijah will come. I believe he will during the tribulation. But Jesus said, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. So he says, yeah, the scribes are right. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. We have this interesting phenomenon of John the Baptist. Was he Elijah? Wasn't he Elijah? He said he wasn't. Jesus said, it seems to say that he was here. And it's confusing. Obviously, you know, Elijah didn't just... Um, reincarnate to become John the Baptist. We know John the Baptist had an earthly father and mother. 
And, and really the problem, it, it, the question is, if the children of Israel had received Jesus as their Messiah in the first century, what would have happened? They rejected him as a result. We have the church age. As a result, he was, ended up being killed, rising from the dead. And now for the last couple thousand years, God's been dealing with primarily Gentiles. God will still deal with Israel. He's promised to do that. But what if they hadn't rejected him? John chapter 1 said, he came unto his own and his own received him not. What if he came to his own and they accepted him? What if they had said, yeah, you're the Messiah and they would have bowed down? I don't know. Don't know what would have happened. He would have still had to die because he still had to pay the penalty for our sins. But it's possible that the coming of Elijah in the person of John the Baptist would have fulfilled that prophecy in Malachi. And that may be what he was talking about. If you had accepted him, he could have been the John the Baptist. He, he could have been the Elijah. He could have been the one who fulfilled that prophecy. So interesting to think about, foolish to spend too much time speculating over because it didn't happen. What, what kind of puts it all together is over in Luke chapter 1, Jesus said that, that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, the spirit and power of Elijah. So it was the same spirit, it was the same function, it was the same role. And quite often in prophecy, you'll see a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Sometimes a prophecy is fulfilled in a way, but then later it's fulfilled in a much more distinct way. And so that can happen too, and that kind of solves that mystery. Now in verse 14 and following, we have this miracle of the boy being healed. And it says, when he had come to the multitude, a man came to him and knelt down and was saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't cure him. I'm sure the disciples hated this. Anybody, you know, when you have somebody who goes to your boss and says that you haven't done your job, this was embarrassing and frustrating to them. Now, in the New King James, it translates that word, he's an epileptic. In King James, it said he was a lunatic. Um, there are other modern passages that say that he was demon-possessed. Now, there are some people who have really been bugged at the Bible because they've said, Oh, it calls him a lunatic, and really he was just an epileptic. And then it says that he was demon-possessed, so therefore they say either all epileptics are lunatics or all epileptics are demon-possessed or so on. Not what he's saying at all. The, the word there literally is moonstruck. And that was the term that they used to refer to people, sometimes epileptics, but other times people who they thought were actually affected by I don't know how this works. I don't understand the science of it at all. But I, I can tell you this. When there's a full moon, weird things happen to people. I am one of the least superstitious people I know. But after years and years and years of being at Calvary Costa Mesa, I'm telling you, we get to church, I'd look up and see that full moon, and I knew that somebody was going to interrupt the service. Somebody was going to start acting weird. I don't know what it is. They've done studies and found out that people who have mental problems, it's actually more difficult for them sometimes during the full moon. I have no idea how that works. But anyway, that's how this term got to refer to this. Now, there are some people who would say that the ignorance of the Bible writers would say that he was a lunatic, but really he was moonstruck and we know that he was only epileptic. 
And I even heard a pastor recently on, on K-Wave saying this, saying, see if you know the Greek, because the Greek word there is moonstruck. And he wasn't, he wasn't a lunatic. He wasn't demon-possessed. He was only epileptic. And the Bible tells that faithfully. But that sounds really good, but there's a problem with that, is that right down below in verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. So obviously, he was more than epileptic. He was demon-possessed. And plus, when the story is told in Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9, they both say it was demon-possessed and don't say he was moonstruck. So he was demon-possessed, this boy was. And the demon in the other gospels, in Mark and Luke, it tells that he would be foaming at the mouth and, and again, he falls into the fire. And it was a horrible case of, of demon possession of this boy. Now, some of the behavior seem to be the same as an epileptic and that's why they would use the term but you know if you're epileptic don't feel like the bible's branding you as demon possessed if you've ever seen a demon possessed person you'll see they act an awful lot like someone who's having a seizure and so it was the epileptic and technically anyone with a seizure is epileptic epilepsy is just having seizures so if you have one if you have them constantly it's still epilepsy and if you have it because of demons or you have it because of some other problem. He's describing the symptom here is what he's saying. But this kid was just having a horrible time and his dad cried out to Jesus and said, you know, you were gone and I, we tried your disciples, but they couldn't fix him. And Jesus said, oh, faithless and perverse generation. I'm sure the disciples love to hear this. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. And the dad thought, I should have come to you in the first place. Your disciples, they're terrible. And the disciples privately came to Jesus and said, okay, how come we couldn't do it? And Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. In verse 21, a lot of man some manuscripts don't have that verse in there. Personally, I believe it belongs in there. But Jesus basically tells them, first of all, you guys didn't have the faith. And then secondly, you need to spend a little more time praying and fasting. While you're casting out a demon, no, it's too late at that point. You need to prepare yourself spiritually for whatever it is that you're going to encounter because you don't know when you're going to come up against a spiritual battle that's more difficult than you can handle. And so what he's saying is you should be regularly praying and fasting as I do and you'd have enough faith to be able to make this happen, but you didn't. For us, the, the lesson, I think there are several lessons here that are clear. I don't know what demons I'm going to face tomorrow. Might be real demons. Might just be people who act like demons. Might be other problems that seem so overwhelming. I don't know what I'm facing tomorrow or next week. So I need to be praying today. I need to be fasting now so that spiritually I'm prepared and have the faith to deal with it when it happens. Because when it happens, it's too late. It's too late to go back and prepare yourself. It, so many people, after their house gets broken into, then what do they do? They call the police out to talk about theft prevention. They, they get an alarm installed. They, do, uh, they put bars on their windows. They do everything they can, and their house has already been cleaned out. There's nothing else to take. And yet, if we would 
take precautions ahead of time and be prepared for what we're going to face, well, we'd find it goes much better that way. And that's why Jesus didn't wait until an emergency before he spent time with the Father. He did it regularly. That's why fasting is something that was to be done regularly because it spiritually prepares you for what God knows is coming, but what you don't know is coming. And so just an example here, but also another lesson that I think we should remember from this is ultimately we are not the ones who can solve people's problems. The best thing when you have a problem, don't take it to people. They don't have the faith, the power, the strength that Jesus has. If we can come boldly before the throne of grace because of what he has done, then take it straight to him. People come to us and we just become overwhelmed. People will go to other people to try to solve their problems, and sometimes we make them worse. We sit there and try to give them some advice, and it gets all twisted around, and it goes horribly, and we think, why didn't, you know, go to the boss. Go to the one who is able to take on all of your problems and solve them. Go straight to him. He never fails. Difficult problem, simple problem, doesn't matter. He's happy to hear from you. Bring them to Jesus rather than just taking everything to his disciples. Then Jesus again predicted his death and resurrection in verse 22. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Sorrowful, even though he mentioned, I'm only going to be dead for three days. They not only were bummed out, they were so bummed when he said he was going to die that they didn't hear what he said about the resurrection. And even after he died, they didn't expect him to rise from the dead. He didn't remember what he had to say until later about it, but he's preparing them. Then you have at the end of the chapter this, ooh, it's getting late. Guess we're not going to get three chapters in tonight. The, the story that the temple tax, they came to receive the temple tax, basically trying to force them to pay a tax that really they didn't owe. And, and so Jesus uh, talked to Peter about it and said, what do you think? And and Peter said, well, he asked him, who pays taxes, strangers or, or sons? And he said, strangers. And Jesus said, yeah, the sons are free. However, we really don't owe the temple tax, but go ahead and catch a fish, open his mouth, there'll be a coin in there, and, you know, pay the taxes. I, mean, I love that. Wouldn't you love to be able to pay your taxes that way? You get your bill, it's April, it's time you figure it out and just go, man, I owe $15,000. I better go fishing. And the first fish you catch, open it up. There's the money right there. You pay your taxes. Well, that's the kind of God Jesus is. He could just do that. He did it. I, I'm sure it was a kick for Peter. They still, there's a fish in Israel that they call St. Peter's fish that supposedly is the type of fish that this happened to. They're an ugly fish. You would never, I don't know how people, I've seen people eat them. I have no idea how they can. We, we were eating there one time on a kibbutz and they brought out the St. Peter's fish. They leave the head on, the eyes on and everything. And, and one of our bus drivers had cigarettes. So I took a cigarette and stuck it in his mouth and lit it. And people are, oh, what's going on? And the fishes are smoking. And there was also a coin in his mouth that we stuck in there and they're fun to play with but this is just how think about this the next time you're thinking that God can't provide for your needs think about this the next time you think I have obligations that are coming and I don't know how in the world it's going to be taken care of if Jesus wants to he can stick it in the mouth of a fish 
or something else. He can provide. In this case, they were fishermen. That was a logical thing for them to do. He, they just saved the trouble of having to actually go sell the fish. But sometimes when you're really stressed, when you're feeling like, I don't know, what am I going to do? How am I going to be provided for? Uh, go fishing. You never know. <laughs> never know. Be good for you anyway, and the bills will still be there when you get back. The story then in chapter 18 of Jesus, it says that the disciples came to Jesus and said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus put a little kid on his lap and he set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by, by whom the offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Kids, God loves them. Jesus always drew them to himself. There's something about children. There's a, you know, the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, that says that everything is basically deteriorating, is opposed to the law of evolution that says that things are constantly developing and becoming better. All you have to do is look at a kid and then look in the mirror and you're going to find the law of entropy is much more realistic than the law of evolution. Oh, we may be getting bigger, but are we getting better? I don't think so. I really don't believe so. I think when God creates children, they're beautiful. They're valuable. He values them incredibly. Over time, we deteriorate. And he says, you need to be converted back into being a child. You need to rediscover what that was. As we were over there in El Salvador, some of the most touching things is just to see the little kids. The joy that they have, the enthusiasm they have for the Lord. I, you know, if I, watching these little orphans at their church there in El Salvador, in San Salvador, um, singing praises to God, I thought, if our church... If the adults, and Rick and I were talking about this, if we could just have our church worship like those little kids just once, I'd go to heaven. I'd be done. I would be so overjoyed. But we don't. We, I don't know why we're old or tired. We have all kinds of excuses. I read a study recently, just a few days ago, that said that the average child laughs 40 times in a day. The average adult, about 14 times a day. What happened? Is the world not as funny when you get older? No, that's not the case. It's that we're losing something of the image of God that was put within us, something of our likeness of him. We lose it. We're too serious. 
We're too worried. We think it all depends on us. And the joy of the Lord that's our strength dissipates because we're, we're old, because we're adults, because we're sophisticated. And we somehow think one of the biggest insults that we make of, of another adult is you're acting so juvenile. Come on, grow up, act your age. You're acting like a kid. I remember one time when one of our second grade teachers at Calvary got mad at his class. They were goofing around, and he yelled at the second grade class. He said, would you act your age? And one of the little girls raised her hand, and, and she said, Mr. Dan, we are acting our age. This is how second graders act. <laughs> it's true. It's one of the reasons why I think one of the greatest privileges in the church is to work with children in children's ministry. If you've never done that, you are robbing yourself of an incredible blessing. You are holding short of God showing you so much about yourself. D.L. Moody, one time when he came home from speaking at a revival meeting, they asked him, well, how did it go tonight? He said, oh, pretty good. They said, anybody get saved? And he said, yeah. He said, two and a half people. And they said, oh, that's cute. Two adults and one child. And he said, no, two children and one adult. He said, the adult had used most of his life up, but those children had their whole lives to give to the Lord. Oh, they're so important to him. They need to be a priority to us. They're a blessing. They're a heritage from the Lord. They're, if you don't have kids, take care of somebody else's for a while. Go call somebody up and, I mean, we have some families with lots of kids, right, Mary Beth? And, and just, just, say, just say, hey, can I watch your kids for a while? It may remind you of why you're glad you don't have kids, but more often than not, you're going to be blessed. Jesus didn't have kids, so he adopted millions of them. And I could just go off. I love kids. I could do this forever. But notice again in warning, don't do anything to mess up these kids. Don't stumble them. Take that seriously. If he says the things that you do that stumble children, it'd be better for you that a millstone be hung around your neck and you'd be cast to the bottom of the sea. I think every parent ought to read that once in a while and think about it. I think every parent who, who breaks his family up or her family up, I think every parent who gets involved in chemicals or alcohol or things like that, that that destroy your life, think about it. Think about what it's going to do to your kids. I'm telling you, if you're doing something right now that stumbles your kids, and it may not be something really bad like molesting them or something. It may just be being a lousy example or not being home enough for them or not touching them and holding them, not loving them, not showing them how much you care, not taking time to do their homework with them or go to a sporting event with them or something like that. If you're stumbling them, God, Jesus Christ himself says, it's better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you be cast to the bottom of the sea. That's serious. No wonder we don't laugh as much as kids do with that kind of responsibility. But what a precious privilege we have to watch children grow up, to reach out and love them with the love of the Lord. They receive so readily the truth of the gospel. And if you don't learn to be like one, I don't know, he says you can't enter the kingdom of God. You can come up with all kinds of fancy theological explanations as to why that's not a big deal, but I want to be a kid. One time when I was doing to every man an answer, a little kid called up and said, uh, my daddy says that when we get to heaven, we're all going to be adults. 
is that true? He said his dad was a pastor. I told him, you need to get another church. And then I, I said, I'm just kidding. But I, but I said, you know, I have my heart set on the fact that when we get to heaven, that we'll all be kids. And I believe that and I desire that. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't you love to go back and be a kid knowing what you know now, having the priorities that you understand now? Maybe heaven is that. But whatever he means by this, take this to the bank. Children are so valuable to him that if you want to minister to him, minister to them, he says. Reach out to them, love them, be there for them. Oh, man. Other stuff, it'll wait. I mean, I'll confess to you. There were times in my life when I spent so much time in ministry that sometimes, oh, you know, people from the outside would look and, man, I'd be there every time my kids did sports and I'd help them with their homework and things like that. But one of the most painful things I've ever felt in my life was when my son told me, Dad, you don't know how many times I sat there on the steps until I had to go to bed hoping you'd get home early and you stayed at work. Devastating to me. Jesus Christ values those children. There isn't anything else you have in your life more important than those children. That's it. It's so important. It's why I'm excited that, you know, to see Calvary being, see us support like Gene and Julie who are out there and Rose Martinez who are just dealing with kids. It's why when I saw David Gregory with just a handful of kids doing their little game shows and doing that stuff, I'm just like, this is so cool. This is so great. It's what it's all about. Oh, I've kept you too long already. We'll stop here, but you get the idea. Let's pray. Lord, help us to become more like little kids and all that that entails spiritually so that we can experience your kingdom here on earth and we can know that we're putting our values into what you value, that we're putting our time and energy into things that matter to you. Lord, if there's anyone here who has had that turned upside down like the disciples did, get the kids out of the way. Lord, touch our hearts. And God, I thank you for your word. As you taught, as you worked powerfully, caring enough about this kid to cast demons out of him when it was really difficult, caring enough that you prayed and fasted ahead of time so that you'd be ready to help a kid when you needed to be. Help us to prepare ourselves for what you want to do through us. And God, we pray that you would help us as we look around in this world that we will see things with your values through your eyes. That the things that really matter to you, the things that mattered to you as you were walking on this earth, that they would matter to us. And we'd be more like you in that way. And we just pray this because we need it. In Jesus' name, amen.